You're now listening to a new episode of Gratitude Through Hard Times. Gratitude instills humility. Gratitude removes ego. Gratitude helps empower the best in others around you. Our goal is to guide individuals and companies to practice gratitude so you can live a longer, happier, and more successful life. Get ahead of life with connection and purpose. This is Gratitude Through Hard Times with Chris Shembra. Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to another episode of Gratitude Through Hard Times. It's your host, Chris Shembra, and I may verbally sound different today. I'm actually recording this episode in person with today's amazing guest. If you're new to this podcast, we welcome you with open arms. I don't know how you got to this episode. Maybe a friend shared it with you or you Googled today's guest or it just came up on your For You page, but we're glad you're here. If you look back through the podcast episode archives, you'll see 230-something episodes of us bringing on some of the world's great leaders telling their authentic story of their commitment to gratitude, empathy, and meaningful moments of human connection. If you haven't clicked that subscribe button, I'll remind you later on in this podcast, but we're so excited to have you along for the ride. For all the returning Listeners, I welcome you with open arms. Some of my favorite moments throughout the week are when you email in your thoughts, questions, comments, concerns of today's episode guest. This podcast is for you. Most of you remember this being called 747 Conversations, but due to the overwhelming support you showed when our second book was launched in July and June of 2022, you helped it get to number one on the Wall Street Journal bestseller list, and we thank you for it. We decided to rebrand this podcast in honor of that effort and your support to gratitude through hard times. I can't thank you enough for being a part of this journey, and I think you're really going to enjoy today's episode of Gratitude Through Hard Times. Now, today's episode is going to be a little bit different. We're recording in person. It'll be a little bit longer, and we're going to be navigating where we're going along the way. Today's guest is really, really good at coming up with declarations and insights and ideas that are quotable for your life and leadership. Christina Luconi is the chief people officer of a wonderful cybersecurity company named Rapid7. You've probably heard of them. You've probably worked with them. They're one of the biggest providers in that space, one of the most trusted sources. And Christine has dedicated her entire career to the entire employee life cycle. She is thinking about people each and every day, and she's always on the cutting edge of innovative people strategies. Today, we're going to give you a peek under the hood of Christina the person, not Christina, the chief people officer. I've had the opportunity of getting to know her over the last several months, and she's got one heck of a good story. 
So grab that coffee, grab that glass of wine, and strap in for a, a wonderful conversation. Christina, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Chris. I'm happy to be here. Now, we are sitting in uh, a recording studio in New York City, but you came in this morning from Boston, Massachusetts. I did. What made you say yes to this podcast? You, right? I mean, I think of life as about connections, which is ironic because I would put myself as more of an introvert than an extrovert, right? And I think sometimes you assume more introverted people wouldn't necessarily want to be around other human beings sometimes. Um, and for me, I, like that is what has made the work that I've done or my life interesting is the connections that I've made with people. So I may not like walking into a cocktail party where I know no one, but I love opportunities to meet new and interesting people because I think it makes my world expand with every one of those conversations. So you and I connected um, originally when I was in the hospital, which I'm sure we'll get to at some point, which was a hard time for me. And I think I sort of was like, this, seem, this guy seems really interesting, but like literally I'm in a hospital bed. I got to punt this conversation for a bit. And a couple of weeks later when I came up for air, we ended up having a conversation. And I was like, I, I need to know this person. Like forget about a podcast. I didn't care if, you know, we ended up doing something or not. But I was really intrigued by your story, by your background, by what you were trying to accomplish in the world. And immediately, you know, bought your books and stuff and, and we and we ended up here. So long story short, that made me get up this morning and drive here. I love the sentence you said about world expanding. And I want to get to that abundance mindset, finding the opportunity, constantly life learning, world expanding in just a little bit. Okay. But I'm so excited you're here today. And it's so nice to meet you. For all our listeners, um, you are familiar with this podcast starting off a certain way. Uh, to all the new listeners, we, are, we dedicate our entire life to the science and psychology and ancient Stoic philosophy of gratitude. And we've asked the same signature gratitude question at the start of every single podcast episode for the last four years. And we've used the signature gratitude question to spark over 500,000 relationships within the workplace. And so I have to start off our conversation with you, Christina, by asking you a simple question. If you could give credit or thanks to one person in your life that you don't give enough credit or thanks to, or you've never thought to thank, who would that be? Um, this question stresses me out because I would like to think that I actually am really good at that. Like most of my conversations, and you can't do it too much because then it sounds disingenuous, but I've always been very intentional about letting people that I respect or appreciate and end most conversations with, I appreciate you, which mm -hmm. I think goes a lot farther than thank you. The, and there's not one person, but if I had to answer this question that I don't do enough is the qualifier there is probably my parents because um, I really respect them 
and the way that they raised me. And it, it was pretty foundational. And, and um, my dad is a serial entrepreneur and an incredibly bright guy and, and instilled an insane work ethic in me. And my mom was, uh, is, uh, they're both living very healthy. Um, my mom was like the world's best mommy, right? Like when I was growing up, like she just provided that safe space and breakfast every morning and, you know, a little more old school than what moms are probably doing now, certainly myself as I was, you know, my kids were younger. Um, but the two of them combined, like provided, I had an amazing childhood. And I try to be really thoughtful about letting them know that um, and how much I appreciate that. But it, I, you probably can't do that enough. So I would say my mom and dad. It sounds like you've given an amazing quantity of gratitude to these people. Are you giving that gratitude in the language they like to receive it? I try. I mean, people are different, right? You know, I, I work with very different personalities, um, I have found, though, that, uh, and I don't go around doing it like on a, the regular, if I'm meeting with people three times a day, like they don't need to hear it all the time, like then it just feels false. But, um, you know, I have people on my teams, like some really need it. There used to be a woman on my team who used to say, I need you to fill my bucket like a couple times a week. That's what I need. So I was really intentional about like, I cannot do this all the time. Like that's a massive force at some point for me because it doesn't feel natural, but it's what she needed. So I found like a good, a good thing that worked for both of us. I have another person on my team who is just as amazing. She's just like, we pass each other in the hall if we're not in a meeting and she'll give me like the, the guy head nod, right? Like she didn't have time for the chit chat and whatever. She's great. And yet both of them really appreciate the sentence, I appreciate you or I appreciate mm. what you did. So that for me seems like a fairly universal thing, but you have to, you have to know people and what's driving them. You mentioned that I appreciate you goes farther than thank you. I think so. Tell me about that. Everyone says thank you. I think sometimes just mixing up the snow globe, shaking it up and just doing something a little different lands with people. Um, but everything has to be very authentic, right? I mean, I, I wouldn't want someone to listen to this and say, I'm going to go around saying I appreciate it. If you don't mean it or if you don't feel that, um, I think that sentence is authentic to me. Um, so I think people realize when I say it, I probably mean it. Um, but, it, you know, thank you seems just kind of there. Everyone says thank you. You need to shake up the snow globe. You've always had the ability to look at what other people are doing, see if it's working or not, and then figure out how to do something different, how to be against the conventional, how to invent some new way of doing something. Mm -hmm. When did you first start realizing that that was one of your... When yeah. I was 14. When you I were think, 14. Like I have a moment where I think I realized that that was happening for me, right? You know, I grew up in this fairly traditional environment, um, and I don't like rules, and I don't like limitations and boundaries and all that kind of stuff, which is... You know, I grew up with parents. I was the oldest child, the daughter. Like, my curfew was, was at midnight. My brother's was 2 a.m., and he was two years younger. Like, that stuff used to piss me off. But, um, you know, I know my parents were trying to protect me, whatever. But I liked breaking rules and seeing how much I could get away with. As long as I was not hurting anyone, um, I wanted to see what I could push boundaries on. And when I was 14, 
um, I totally lied to my parents and said my friend and I were going to go camp out in the backyard. And um, we did not camp. We walked down the street a mile to a party that her older sister was throwing. And long story short, like my dad found me um, at two o'clock in the morning and I was in a car with some kids going back to the party and he did a Starsky and Hutch and like literally like cut their car off and like pulled me out. And he's like, don't speak, like get in the car. And, and we went home and that was like at the beginning of June and I was grounded for the entire summer, which sucks when you're 14, right? And um, I decided that I would reinvent myself that summer. And I went back to school my sophomore year in high school and I sort of had to change my friend group. I had to, I just sort of saw the path I was going down and it probably wasn't a great one. And I thought, how do you, how do you reinvent yourself? And um, I did. And that's where I think I started, like what's gonna feel good to me? I didn't start, start worrying about, like I didn't totally ignore my old friends that I was getting in trouble with. Um, but I started broadening my group and I started thinking it's not maybe as important to have a click, but try to be friends with everybody, like meet people from every group and figure out how to expand my world and my thinking and whatever. And it worked pretty well. And I think I didn't realize that that's like a fairly ballsy thing to do when you're 14 is try to reinvent yourself because everyone wants to be like everybody else at that point in time. And I wanted to do the exact opposite. Um, and it served me well. You reinvent yourself, but then you balance the idea of meeting new people for this reinvention, mm-hmm. but also not ignoring the people that got you to where you were then. Yep. And not completely cutting out the old group from your life. Most people, when they think of reinvention, they can't balance the idea of going to something new while also appreciating and taking care of the old. Most people just say, all right, I'm cutting out any part of me that used to be me and I'm only going to the new. But you balance both. What's the trick to that? Um, I don't know. I never thought about it, right? I mean, I'm, I, I guess the, <laughs> the most concrete example is something that I could cut out that I don't is my ex-husband, right? I've been divorced for 10 years and um, I find gratitude in the fact that if I hadn't married him, I wouldn't have my two kids. Um, Like I can find the gratitude or I can find the positivity in any crappy situation, I think. And um, that doesn't mean I have to like the situation, but I'll find the positive in it somehow. And you know, I've been to Thanksgiving at his house with his new wife and his kids, mm-hmm. with my kids, which you know, I'll be honest, is a pride swallowing event, but it was important for my kids to see me making that effort with him. So that's a piece of my life that, you know, I would think by definition you'd want to cut out, but I haven't. Instead, you find gratitude in pride swallowing events. Well, luckily, I haven't had too many pride-swallowing events, but yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you got to. You, you got to find a way to live through it, right? It's, um, I want to challenge your use of the word reinvention okay. at the age of 14. I, I would have to think deeper on this, and, and to all our listeners, uh, 
please email in your, your thoughts and, and criticism of what I'm about to say, but reinvention um, to me seems like, you know, completely eliminating what used to be and completely going to something new. I wouldn't say you reinvented. I would just say you, you added another layer to your existing self because you didn't want to cut out your prior memories or experiences or friends. Sure. You just added new flavors and layers. I think there's something tremendously, yeah, I, th- I think it's, there's something beautiful about the way that you're saying you don't turn your back on your past. You look for the positive benefits in it and keep it as part of your life story. That's very articulate. I never would have said it that way, but I like your way of saying it. <laughs> I think that's true, though. I do think that's true. I mean, I, you know, we, you mentioned the word shame before we went on live, and, and um, like, I don't, I can't, when you said that word, I thought, I can't think of a time in my life where I've felt shame. Like, I just, I, I think everything that I have lived through is an opportunity to learn something. So there's certainly things that I've screwed up or like not proud of or whatever, but I don't dwell on them. I'm like, what can I take away from that moment or, or what can I learn from that and do it better going forward? So I don't want to erase it from my past. I just want to use it as a, if I hadn't gone through that, then I wouldn't be here at this point. The, the sentence that you had said earlier was, I don't worry about judgment from others. I have no shame. Um, it sounds like you've figured out a way to find positive benefits in those negative experiences and make the result of going through those negative experiences better than where you were before going into them. Sure. Um, science, specifically uh, out of Eastern Washington University, uh, did a study called Grateful Processing. And they found uh, that when people go through a negative autobiographical experience in their life, they can do one of three things. Either ignore it, pretend like it didn't happen and just move on mm-hmm. and don't process it. <laughs> or number two, you can talk it out to like a therapist or someone and uh, maybe write about it in a journal um, and then move on. Or you could specifically assign positive benefits that have occurred as a result of the negative autobiographical experience. Talk about it, write about it, make a part of your life story, give gratitude to it because mm-hmm. you realize the positive far outweighs the negative. Sure. And studies show that's the best way to actively cope or process with that open traumatic wound. Grateful processing. And it sounds like you're finding gratitude through your darkest hours. Try to. So here's the question. Because I won't go into the how you do do that, tactical how you do strategies. Um, Our readers can learn about that in your forthcoming, not yet written book. (laughs) Um, And I'll be the first to put it out there in in the world or series of LinkedIn posts or something. Um, But the question is, how do you help find, how do you help people get that, find that gratitude when, when they haven't gone through hard times or they're not willing to look at their own hard times? How do you get someone to 
to dig into that? Um, it's a great question. Who hasn't been through a hard time though, right? I guess it's all how you, you look at things. I mean, I will share this. This is, this is, you know, if we all admit things about ourselves that we like about ourselves or don't like, I will say one of the things that I've sort of figured out about myself over the last couple of years is I love being around people who are positive and are willing to sort of look for the gratitude, whatever word you put on it, but sort of look for the positivity, the gratitude, et cetera. I have a really hard time with victim mentality. And what I mean by that is, you know, there are victims of things. I'm not talking about significant victims, but people that just sort of look at the world as this is happening to me. And I think we all have more control over our lives and what happens to us than we realize. Mm-hmm. And I, I think people need to believe that about themselves, right? So when we were thrown around goofy things, right, one of the things I, I put on the whiteboard was this concept of why not me? And why not me for years for me has meant when I first got out of college and I was in my first job, I was recruiting really intelligent um, young people from top business schools, so from Harvard and MIT and Dartmouth and Northwestern. And it was a little intimidating. I was 22, just out of college, and I thought, oh, these people are like so well-educated and I'm never going to be able to talk to them. And then I got to, then I hired them and they worked at our company and they became my friends. And I realized these are really well-educated people. It doesn't make them better than me. It doesn't make them smarter than me. It just means they went to business school. And um, I looked at the work they were doing and I started thinking, why not me? Why, you know, okay, I'm probably not going to get into Harvard, but um, I could go back to school. And I went at night for two years just to prove to myself that I could do the work that they were doing. And I ended up as a consultant in this company. So I went from being on the people side, the human resources side of the stuff. Um, and two years later, I became a consultant and I did that for a couple of years and, and learned how to work with organizations and things. And it was completely a, a, you know, it was the first time in my life I think I had ever really challenged myself to say, well, if they can do it, why couldn't I? Why not me? And I think a lot of the limitations, I've been very, very blessed with an education and I've, you know, gone to school and I've been, was raised in a great family and my parents are loving and supportive and, you know, I don't have childhood trauma and and that kind of stuff. So I feel like I have this incredibly blessed early life that kind of set me up to, to think this way. But I think there's no boundary. If you work hard enough, I think there's like not a lot of boundaries you can't overcome if you're committed and drive to that. So why not me became sort of my mantra of, I can pretty much do anything I set out to do. I just have to be incredibly committed to it. And, um, and that's how I got into startups. There is no boundary you can't overcome. Reminds me of another thing that you put on the whiteboard, which was break the glass and then find the opportunity. <laughs> You're giggling when you say that. Yeah. Tell me about that. Um, years ago, we... Uh, I got my second tattoo, and it was this, I had been in startups, I think it was on my second one, and I thought, how do I, like, these really resonate with me. I'm not a gambler in Vegas, 
but I gamble on people and I gamble on businesses I think can go somewhere. And I love the stress of trying to build something from nothing and see if it can go somewhere. I, I crave that. And um, I'm like an intellectual <laughs> adrenaline junkie. And in my world, like I didn't aspire to be a CEO. I aspired to, what do you do if you're a chief people officer in your 20s? Where the heck do you go from that? I could go to bigger companies. I didn't really want to. Um, so you'd rinse and repeat. You know, a, a little bit of a one-trick pony is like I'll go in as like the first people person and then try to scale it with soul, if you will, over time. And I think that the, the break, the ceiling was, you know, for a long time, uh, I was the only or one of very few women in the room with a bunch of guys trying to build these companies. And I tried to find what the advantage to that situation was. Rather than feel like I was singled out or I'm the minority here, I thought there's got to be some benefits to being unique in this situation. And um, I ended up finding out that a lot of the men that I work with, with the work that I do, it was pretty beneficial to be a woman. I got them to talk about things or break down boundaries that they probably weren't doing with each other. Um, I got them to probably be a little more vulnerable about some of their weak spots or places that they were trying to, you know, work through either with the business or with their leadership or, or whatever. And that for me was, is, is a breaking the ceiling, right? I wasn't worried about who's going to get in my way, who's going to prevent me. Instead, like, why would I go there? Why would I be around people that are make it more difficult for me? I sought out people that were open-minded and, and um, maybe if they weren't, that, you know, I would create that opportunity. So that for me is breaking glass. It's just figure out what you're trying to do, find the way around it and find the opportunity. It sounds like you didn't study and then loathe the statistics of how little women have representation at the executive level in corporate America. You didn't care about the statistics because you just went and did it. I didn't think about it. Yeah, and so it sounds like um, others who dwell in the statistic and then use the statistic as a hindrance for their own growth might be living in a victim mindset themselves. Maybe. I mean, there are situations that suck for people, right? I mean, like, yeah. I don't want to yeah. negate yeah, yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, I know some women that have been in some really bad situations. Um, but I think some of that is within our control, right? I've had my butt grabbed by more people at work, which is like kind of an interesting thing to do to a chief people officer, right? I mean, like, that's kind of ballsy, but... I, I find a simple, are we allowed to swear? Like a simple, yeah. what the fuck are you doing? Like yeah. goes a long way. Guess what? They never do it again. Um, and, and it doesn't have to be contentious. It's just like, really do? Like, what are you doing? And sometimes people don't, they're not even aware of their behavior, right? Um, so I find a little empathy and yeah. a pretty direct approach. Like go along, got to balance those things, but it goes a long way. I don't mean to be dramatic with this, but when something bad happens to you Mm -hmm. at the behest of someone else's decisions, you've chosen to respond with empathy. Is that true? I try to. Oh, no, you 
you can respond with discipline, mm-hmm. of course. Sure. But you empathize while also, right? Empathy I, is the I art. Do. I try Empathy to- is the art of imaginatively stepping into the shoes of the other person to understand their feelings and perspectives, and yep. then using that knowledge to guide your actions. You can empathize with someone and then fire them. Sure. You can <laughs> empathize with them and then promote them. Yep. But you're choosing to lead with empathy, regardless of how strict your disciplinarian strategies sure. are that follow. I do try to figure out. I mean, we're, we're all unique people just trying to figure it out, right? And, and there's some good people and there's some bad people in the world. But like generally speaking, I'd like to think that pe- most people are good um, until they prove me otherwise. And sometimes uh, people need you to walk in their shoes mm-hmm. or just, you know, be a human. Be human. The... Um I want to close the loop on the victim mindset thing by referencing um, a book that that a lot of you listeners have heard me talk about before. It's the wonderful book, An Anatomy of Peace. Anatomy of Peace is the fictional story of six sets of parents dropping their kids off to a wilderness rehab like the one I went to in, in Southwest America. And the rehab is owned by two people, uh, an Israeli Jew and a Palestinian Arab. And both of the co-founders, fathers, were killed by the other co-founders' ethnic tribes. But they found peace. They found forgiveness. They came together and started something beneficial. And when the six sets of parents dropped their kids off to the rehab, they, the kids get dressed and go off into the middle of the woods and they start their rehab and the parents have to stay for a couple of days. One of the parents looks at the two rehab owners and says, with a pointing finger, I can't wait to spend the next two days figuring out or learning how you're going to fix my kid. <laughs> and the two rehab owners are looking at each other and they're like, well, if we're not going to be talking about your kids for the next two days. We're here to talk about you, the parent. And that father says, me, the parent, why? They're the problem, not me. And the two rehab owners say, yes, but in order to see the change you want to see in others, first you have to make the change within yourself. And it's a big conflict resolution. It's a big bestseller in conflict resolution because essentially it helps people own up to the fact that we could be walking around with our hearts at war and creating conflict with others without us even realizing it. We could have a victim mindset. We could feel that we're superior to others. Both of those are a form of entitlement. Mm -hmm. Both of those make our hearts walk around at war. And the book takes us along the fictional journey of helping these parents bring their hearts at peace. And it sounds like even though you've been through a variety of challenging circumstances, you choose to walk around with your heart at peace to your ex-husband to the people that grab your butts, <laughs> to cancer, to all these things, and still continue to lead with empathy. And what you're saying is, that's not luck. 
That's not accident. Yes, shitty things have happened to me, but I have a choice to show up every day and lead with empathy before I judge others. That's a very novel way of walking through the world. Do you realize that? No. No, I never thought about it before we started talking about it. I just think that's, it's a much more peaceful way to, like, if I look at my ex-husband, right? He, I mean, he's a good person. I have nothing negative to say about him. Really? At least on <laughs> You're good, you're good. <laughs> uh, but, but, you know, realistically, um, I could feel really bad that I got divorced, and I won't go into, like, why, but, like, that, that was not a great period of my life. And there's a period of time, like, I was raising my daughters on my own, and he had moved away, and it was, like, it was rough. But there was some, like, I'm grateful. I'm grateful because um, I've had an amazing 10 years since my divorce. And who we are, when, when I got married, I was 27. And um, we had a great marriage until it wasn't anymore. So I'm grateful for the time that we had. I realized about myself, I really am a team player. I like, I miss being married. It didn't sour me on marriage. Um, and I like that partnership, but I also really like the fact that I've had the last 10 years to know who I am without having to figure out how to navigate that with somebody else. And it's really cool to be able to like make decisions you can't sometimes make when you're married, like what car you're going to buy or, or uh, you know, did I buy one too many purses or whatever it is. So like, there's some benefits in every situation if you look for them, I think. Um. <laughs> the purse in the car as you, as you rolled up this morning uh, in a wonderful, wonderful car. Um, I get it. It's what you're saying, and I want you listeners to understand this. Life is not about avoiding bad things happening to you. Life is about avoiding a negative mental attitude when those bad things occur. You can have shitty things happen to you and still have a positive mental attitude. You can have really good things happen to you and still have a negative mental attitude. For all you listeners that were listening to Christina's story saying, I had the perfect upbringing. I didn't have any drama. All these things went good, blah, blah, blah. Here we are. Um, you're, <laughs> you're allowed to have the perfect childhood and love your parents and love your upbringing, love everything that happened. And still have a couple moments of trauma. Of I mean, course. you reinvented yourself at 14. There was some trauma there. But here's the important thing, people. Trauma is relative. Stubbing your toe might be very traumatic to someone. Getting cancer might be not traumatic to others. Mm -hmm. Trauma, the, the level of how trauma impacts you is not dependent upon the external circumstances. It's dependent up upon your internal strength to respond to those circumstances. Well said. I just made it up, so I... It was, it was I, very I, impressive. Chris. I need to figure out if what I just <laughs> said was, is like actually what I believe really in. Good. Way more articulate, so, articulate than I so could do. So I want to um, summarize a couple key things. Okay. Um, you, you, a few minutes ago, said you love the stress of building something from nothing. Mm -hmm. And I see that as a declarative statement a title saying, seek the stress. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> so you um, were talking about uh, startup, you know, the, the, 
the growth, the, I'm a one-trick pony, but then I scale with soul. Scale with soul. Do you realize you said that? Yes. Yeah, it's friggin' genius. And the last thing that I reacted to is you talked about the benefits of being unique. The idea that you didn't have to change who you were in order to find moments of belonging within that all-male C-suite. You showed up as you authentically are and found belonging by being unique. And I think that's such an important thing that we can hopefully teach our listeners is that belonging is not blending. Belonging is bonding while staying authentically true to who you are. Mm -hmm. Which of those three things did you react to the most? Seek the stress, scale with soul, benefits of being unique. Scale with soul. Tell me about it. Um, The running joke in our company, I've been at Rapid7 for almost 13 years. Which, if you knew me, like I identify as a startup junkie. I think I've done six of them. Um, how, and big, I, how big was Rapid7 when you joined? 75 people when I joined. Oh my gosh, golly. And um, tell our listeners where now you are we're now. Public and 2,000 plus people, global. Um, and I had done another cybersecurity company um, before I joined. And I thought, you know, like I've been in tech my whole career, but I'm on the people side of it. And I thought, all right, I've done cybersecurity. Like, been there, done that. I don't need to do another one. But I got called by somebody that I knew there, and they said, we need some help. Um, And I really liked Corey Thomas, who's our now CEO. He wasn't then, but he was. And and, um, he's probably the single best bet I've ever made on a human being. He's he's extraordinary for a number of reasons. But um, I joined, and I thought... This is, this is uh, I'll do this for, till we get to an event. I'll build it, you know, this piece. Um, I don't necessarily want to be in this forever, doing another cyber company. I want to, I want to, I'll get in and help. I love this work that I do. Um, these are some really great people to do it with. Great, let's go. And, um, and then we filed to go public in 2015. And my immediate response to that was like, Fantastic. I'm giving my notice because <laughs> I'm doing what I said I would do. And Corey said to me exactly what you say to somebody like me, which was, great job getting us here, get us to a couple thousand people and have it still be an amazing place to be and then you can claim victory and leave. And I'm like, oh, Jesus. You're like, that's, that's you need to say that to me. And, um, and I have. And I'm really grateful that I've stayed I mean, for me, to, like the thought of being anywhere for 13 years is like still a little bit mind-blowing, but um, I'm really grateful because if I had left, I never would have lived through uh, 2020 with my company. 2020, I know I sound like a crazy person, but like 2020, my favorite year of my career because it was so different than any way we had ever worked before and trying to figure out how to keep people engaged and motivated when the world's falling apart, like what a great challenge. Um, I love that stuff. Scaling with soul, though, to me means like, how do you, I think it came out of that conversation with Corey, how do you keep the essence of your values set and what you're trying to be? And I think I had always equated getting bigger as a company with kind of like the bigger you get, the more you suck. Um, Because I equated it with bureaucracy and all kinds of stuff. Um, 
But I, then the challenge was, okay, how do you prevent that from happening? And I can't necessarily prevent bureaucracy. I mean, there does come something with larger scale. But I think you can still be a really great place. You can still believe in your, lead with your value sets and, and things like that. So that became the challenge of scaling with soul. But I think it applies to human beings too. We scale ourselves. We might not get bigger, How but we so? grow as humans. Over years, if you allow yourself to, you're, we started joking about, I don't know what we were saying here, but sort of I almost quoted Stephen Tyler, like, life's a journey, not a destination. And like, that for me is huge. I, I feel like the best is in front of me. I've had a pretty great life. Um, I hate to say, like, I, you know, go dark and twisty, but like, I have cancer. I could, I could die. I, we're all going to die at some point. But if I died tomorrow, I'd be really sad. There's a lot, you know, I love my family. I love my friends, my kids, my work. I love a lot of things that I don't want to die. But if I did die, I would say I've had a really great life and I probably did almost everything I wanted to do. The challenge for me is creating more things I want to do and opening up my world so that I can max it out for as long as I've got it. And that, um, that for me is scaling with soul for myself. How about that? <laughs> I'm making this stuff up as I'm going. So hopefully it makes to, sense. To, to scale with soul... doesn't necessarily mean to our listeners, I'm being very protective of how I say this, to scale with, to scale with soul and constantly grow yourself, I think doesn't necessarily mean you need to go out there and create larger goals, larger benchmarks, larger, larger things to reach in the far future that, 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 uh, that, that might never happen. No, it's about constantly looking at your mindset and realizing I have more good things ahead of me than bad things. I have more positive benefits than negative benefits. I'm going to constantly learn instead of becoming stagnant. I think scaling your soul regardless of what happens in your external life around you, it's a huge, you know, just um, keeping your mind generative and constantly learning and constantly moving forward. Like, you're not necessarily trying to tell these people that, that you want to reinvent and ignore the past. You don't want to do bigger and better things. You don't want to... Oh, I totally want to do bigger and better things. Oh, yeah? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, why not? Um, Just as a personal challenge, right? I mean, I I did not grow up religious. um, But so so in my mind, I have one life. It is my responsibility to max it out and live the best possible life I can. So the, the best possible means like... You know, it's a fairly low bar. Like, be kind to other human beings. Do good in the world. Like, those are, that's like kind of a baseline Mm -hmm. for how I think we should live as human beings. But for me personally, like, you have a set of years that you can do a lot of different things. What do you want those experiences to be? 
And I think it's egregious that people, like, I have people in my life that have said, like, I'm done learning. Oh, my God, you're, like, 40 years old. What are you talking about? And it's because it's, you know, it's an effort to put yourself out there to learn new things sometimes. I think that's egregious. I think you max it out as long as you can. And that doesn't mean you have to do crazy things like jump out of a plane or whatever, which I've done, which is cool. But it's like, check, done it, now what? And I just, I just feel there's a lot of life and so many opportunities out there if you, if you put yourself in that mindset of, like, this is just going to be more interesting for my life, my personal life story. I don't care if anyone else knows about it. For me personally, I'm, I'm living a great life because of that thinking. It sounds like you're rich in life experiences. I think so. My friend Bridget just wrote a book called Experiential Billionaire. Hmm. And their, their hypothesis is, you know, don't try to necessarily, I'm going to butcher the hypothesis, so I, I really won't even try, but um, it's essentially saying, how can we teach people to invest in life experiences rather than just invest in your bank account and defer those life experiences sure. to a faraway place? Yeah. Um, knowing that if you invest in life experiences, your bank account probably will grow over time because of what you've actually sure. learned through those but, experiences. I mean, but, but there's a reality check too. Sometimes having a bank account allows you to do some of those experiences, yeah. right? Yeah. So I was incredibly fortunate um, just before the pandemic to go with my kids to Tanzania. Mm. And they were really excited about doing a safari and whatever. I'm like, great. That's, that's a very privileged thing to be able to do. Some mm-hmm. people... That's on their bucket list. Never get to do it. You guys are getting to do it pretty early in life. What a, what a gift. Um, but the deal was we're going to go spend some time in an orphanage there before we go see animals. And, you know, as a parent, you try to teach your children good things, but they're still children. So maybe they hear it or they see it differently from others than they hear it from you sometimes. And we went and we spent some time at this orphanage where there were 30 kids, 15 girls, 15 boys from the age of two to 18 in a one-room schoolhouse. And they shared a very small space, living quarters, all in bunk beds. They each got one cubby. And they showed us the boys learned how to take care of the animals there, the chickens and stuff. And the girls learned how to do beating work that they would sell to tourists and things. That experience taught my kids more about privilege, um, the power of education, just so many different things that I could never land if I was trying to lecture them as a parent. Um, And it changed my world view on so much. And I never would have been able to do that had I not been physically there. I mean, you can, there's some things that sometimes you just, they need to hit you in the, in the gut. Um, and that I needed a little bit of a bank account to, to go there of and course. experience that. But, but that experience itself has made me, you know, a billionaire in that. I mean, it, it was life-changing. It's, yeah, it's, I, I love that you're acknowledging that it taught your kids things that you couldn't teach them yourself mm-hmm. because uh, they needed to hear it from a third-party weak tie, uh, someone that wasn't their mother who was— sure. um, but it had as much of an impact on you as it did them. And I think that's so important for our listeners to understand that goes back to what you were saying earlier is you're never done learning. 
you can go on a safari to Tanzania at the age of 70 and still get the same life-opening awareness of how others live Mm -hmm. as your kids did when they were 15. And that's empathy. It's never too late in life to continuously empathize with others. But I think some of that is being open-minded, right? Like you can observe or you can engage. And I think those are two really different things, right? You could go, uh, we could have gone and just gone to to the orphanage and just said, wow, these poor children. You know, I almost adopted this little kid, Baraka. I mean, he was two years old. They found him wandering on a street and they brought him here to this place. And um, had I not been, you know, so old, I probably would have brought him back with me and tried to adopt him. He was amazing. But I think the reason that we took a, a lot away from it wasn't just sort of going there and just saying, oh, wow, oh, this is interesting. It was that we sat there with the kids and we played kickball with them, and we asked them a million questions. And not being afraid to try to understand. You seek to understand, right? There's, there's a, uh, a quote that's getting attributed to Ted Lasso, but it's really by Walt Whitman, be curious, not judgmental. And I love that quote, because I think, like, I think most people will answer questions if you ask them with empathy. You're showing interest in the person. You're showing interest in their life versus judging oh my God, you know, what, what is going on here? Um, and I'm not suggesting I'm so pure. I mean, trust me, there's a few people that are, like, I'm pretty judgmental about. Um, but generally speaking, I think if you, if you engage with people and try to learn there's good in everybody, you just have to be open to, to finding it and have an open heart enough to know like just because somebody's different than you doesn't make them better or worse. It's just, we're all just humans. We have more in common than we have differences, I think, at the core of it. Oh, I, I definitely agree with that. I mean, the, I mean, 2020 specifically allowed us to understand that we have more in common than we have differences. For sure. We brought our entire company online and produced hundreds and hundreds of virtual gratitude experiences. Some teams would bring uh, people from 50 countries some experiences, it'd be half Russians, half Ukrainians. Some would be, you know, Republicans and Democrats, tall people, short people. And what we found is that you have an underlying core of things that most people have in common. You've all had a mother. You've all had a father. Mm-hmm. You've all known someone who's helped you. You've known someone who's hurt you. Mm-hmm. If you could tell those stories about all of those people, the stories will be different. Sure. Maybe the mother died at one. Yeah. Maybe the father was never around. Maybe you had more people that helped you. Maybe you had more people that hurt you. But everybody can find common ground through those stories. Um, You saying the difference between observe versus engage. um, Can you, you linked it back to that kid that you were just trying to adopt, (laughs) but you couldn't. Um, can you tell me about the difference between sympathy and empathy? Because some people could go into volunteer places and just have sympathy for people and use that to guide their donations or dollars or whatever. Other people step in and have empathy. See, empathy is the art of imaginatively stepping into the shoes of another person to understand their feelings and perspectives. 
and then using that knowledge to guide your action. It's not sympathy. It's not compassion. It doesn't come from looking within. It comes from looking around. Mm-hmm. How do you balance the difference between sympathy and empathy? I never thought about it. Um, you know, I, I, I spend my Monday afternoons at Mass General in chemo. Chemo Mondays, super fun. Um, and you go in to this room, and it's really interesting to watch how people engage. And that is a situation where I'll do my best to observe, not engage, because it's very personal for a lot of people, and I don't want to be asked a lot of questions. But when I was in the hospital, there was this woman who um, was clearly not in great shape. So I, you know, I was like just diagnosed at a cracked pelvis on top of all of this, and, and like I was challenged every day to get on a walker and do laps around the, the floor. And I would pass her room, and she had the one room that everyone had to mask up before they went in. She had completely lost her hair. She was probably 90 pounds. She's probably around my age. And every time she walked by, my first thought when I first saw her in her bed was, was probably sympathy. Because I'm like, first of all, I am so grateful that even though this is like a shock, I'm, I'm three days into a diagnosis, I can't walk this is really sucks to, to put a fine point on it, but I'm not dying. And this poor woman is, is probably not got very long. And yet when she woke up and I was doing my laps, she would look out the door. We never met. And she just kept saying, you go girl. And she was cheering me on, even though she probably didn't have very much time. So maybe she wouldn't get better, but she, her hope for me was that I would. And that, you know, I went from sympathy to just like, what an amazing person. I mean, it sucks what she was going through and it's, you know, it, it, was, it was heartbreaking and I never met her. But I think I walked out of it with just a new empathy for everyone who's dealing with this. We all go through it in different ways. There's no getting around the fact that cancer sucks. Um, but I think we can all find the gratitude in the situation, right? I was grateful that I had her cheering me on in this really bad time. I was grateful that I didn't have a terminal diagnosis. I was great. There were so many grateful moments. I'm grateful that I'm in an incredible hospital with incredible doctors. I mean, there's so much gratitude in that. And I went from feeling sad for people to just sort of the empathy of all of us going through this. I don't know if that answers your question, but that's kind of how I frame it. You never met the person. Mm-mm. They passed away? I would imagine so. Was, she was definitely at the end. You went from comparing yourself to others. I'm not dying. You went from a comparative mm-hmm. sympathy to a I'm so grateful for and empathy. That's a huge, because uh, gratitude in comparison don't, I am grateful that I have this person. I am grateful that I can walk. I'm grateful for these doctors, not I'm so lucky I have them and other people don't. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, some of that, right, I might have said this already, but like this whole why not me thing, which started early in my career, and it was like, I can do anything if I put my mind to it. I realized in the hospital applies the other way too, 
right? I think sometimes people get sick or something happens to them and the, res- the, the internal response is, why me? Mm. And I sort of thought, well, why the hell not me? Like, I'm not special. People get cancer. A lot of people get cancer. Like, I'm not the special one who's going to dodge that bullet. It's how I respond to it that's going to make a big difference here. And um, that's helped a ton. I'm not, I'm not going to lie. I, there, like, I think having gratitude in your life does not mean you don't admit some things suck. Some things do suck, right? Mm-hmm. We, go, we all have hard times in our lives that we have to power through. But I think I found it much more beneficial to my state of mind um, and hopefully to the, to the outcomes of what I'm trying to do if I find the gratitude in it. So I lay in my hospital bed every day and say, let's find all the, gra-. like, I am grateful for X, Y, Z. And I would challenge myself to come up with something different every day. I still do it. Um, I try to go to bed at night and think of at least one thing I'm grateful for that day. And I try to always make it different. Because um, there's, a, there's a ton to be grateful for in the world. There's a whole chapter in our book called Hope into Healing. And the chapter in our book is based upon my girlfriend's sister, Hope, mm-hmm. who's um, had cancer before, amongst the many other things. She was born with spina bifida and carry malformation. And she's been in and out of the hospitals all her life. And every doctor has ever said about Hope that she is one of the fastest recovering patients of anything that she goes into the hospital for, whether it's a seizure mm-hmm. or cancer. Um, she heals the fastest, and the doctors all say it's because she's, she has an attitude of gratitude. She's eternally grateful. Mm-hmm. And studies out of UC Davis uh, in California show um, all the positive benefits to your health of gratitude. It improves the quality of sleep. It lowers cardiovascular stress when practiced in a peer-to-peer uh, way before a stressful activity. It helps this, it helps that. All these wonderful benefits. And you are just another example of showing, and I can't make the direct correlation <laughs> between cancer and gratitude, but you, you are, are the, the example of a person who is fighting cancer in a good way while maintaining an attitude of gratitude. And I think they're correlated. I think they're correlated yeah. too. But I think I also attach it to that opportunity piece instead of looking at the danger, looking at the opportunity, yeah. where I'm not looking at the, I might die. I, you know, I've got a whole bunch of surgeries and crap I have to deal with in the coming months. Um, I mean, that, that's reality check. Yeah. It's just stuff. But I'm looking at the opportunity in it too. You know, I was, when I got diagnosed, I was in a, in a place in my life where I'm like, okay, my kids are now out of the house and I'm trying to figure out what to do with the next stage of my life. And maybe this is sort of the shaking of the Christina snow globe that was like, mm-hmm. I needed something different. I learned a ton about asking questions, engaging rather than observing. Like, I'm not just going to lay in a hospital bed and let people poke me all day. I'm going to ask them a whole bunch of questions. I learned more life stories from interesting doctors and nurses and, and other people. And, and um, I learned about how the hospital system works and I learned about medicines. And I, like I learned about stuff that I would never have been curious enough to know had, had I not 
been in that situation. So I tried to make the best of the situation. And I'm, now I'm like, ooh, that's an interesting new thing that I don't know about. And maybe I could do something with that. So I think there's always something positive you can take out of it. You asked better questions to engage in an empathetic way with other people that were going through really hard times alongside you. And I think that that's a beautiful, beautiful testament is that hard times don't have to create loneliness. Hard times can create meaningful moments of connection. Sure. When you are going through a hard time, you don't have to feel like you are alone. You can meaningfully connect to others going through hard times simply by asking them questions about what they're going through. Sure. Instead of worrying about you going through a hard time and then you needing to unload your shit on others by just talking about it, talking sure. about it, talking about it, you don't have to do that. You can connect through others going through hard times by asking empathetic questions, open-ended filled with empathy, filled with inquisitive intuition, filled with curiosity. You know, at at minute eight of every virtual gratitude experience we produce, we ask people a simple sentence, a simple question. What's one word that honestly describes how you feel right now in the present moment? They think about it. They reflect on it. And they put the word in the group chat. And so you see all these people take a pause for the first time in a long time, actually authentically breathe and reflect and say, oh man, am I overwhelmed, nervous, cautious, anxious, tired, sad, empty, lost, lonely, or am I grateful, connected, happy, joy, inspired, wiser, lighter, optimistic, hopeful? I don't know. Well, They throw the word in the group chat and then I throw them into breakout groups. Groups of two, six minutes, sole goal is to ask your partner, what's the one word you put in the group chat? And then we teach them a skill set that many of you listeners have heard me talk about through the years called a posture of otherness. (laughs) Turn on the brain to actively listen with curiosity, open up the heart for empathy and ask Good, open-ended follow-up questions. Listen more than you speak. Ask fantastic questions. And those people come back to the main group after six minutes looking completely transformed. Three things happened in those breakout groups or could have happened. One is that two people with a positive word met each other and just talked about positive stuff and created more positive energy. Yeah. Or, number two, two people with a negative word met each other in that breakout group. One is overwhelmed, one was anxious. Hmm. And they talk out their shit, and they ask each other questions, and they realize they're not alone. And they learn empathy and curiosity through the power of their questions, and that creates a positive energy. Less alone, someone else is listening to them, they feel authentically hurt. That's a positive energy. And the third thing that could happen is one is positive, one is negative. The positive learns empathy from the negative. The negative feels authentically seen and heard and feels more positive. So positive, positive, positive. And so what you've been doing in this hospital 
has been listening and asking good questions and empathizing with others, which has made you feel less alone. You've been learning, you felt generative, and they feel less alone. They feel more positive. The benefits go both ways. They do. You know, it's funny though, you said when you were, when you were talking, um, you said you brought it to this one, one word. And as you were right, the, the, the point you were making right before that, I was thinking about this ridiculous thing that I did when I got divorced. I was in a hard time. And I started writing. The first date after post-divorce was like an epic train wreck of a guy. Uh, and it left me feeling like, God, my friends hate me to set me up with this, this person. But he was really interesting. And he was a writer. And, and um, I didn't want to date him again. But what I did was stay there for hours that night talking because we ended up having a really interesting conversation. Again, you can find the positive and the negative. And at the end of the date, he said, you should keep a journal. And I kind of laughed at it. And I thought, you know, I was a kid in high school who would not pass notes because I didn't want people to see my innermost thoughts. I'm great at asking questions. I'm great at letting, I had been historically great at letting people see enough of me so they felt they knew me, but I was great at figuring out them and asking questions that people tend to love to talk about themselves. So that worked really well for me for a long time. But on that drive home that night, I thought, why the hell did I have such a negative reaction to keeping this journal? And what I did that night was say, not only am I going to keep a journal, I'm going to make it public, and I'm going to do it for 365 days. It's insanity. Um, but I did it. And um, I didn't care if anyone read it. I had rules to it, like I will never mention anyone by name. This is my thing. It's not, I don't want to ever have anyone think about stuff. Um, would never badmouth my ex-husband in it. Like I just, I, I wanted to be relatively positive, but like I'm going to write like no one is reading this. That's a really ridiculous thing for any human being to do, right? And I didn't think anyone would read it. By the time I was done writing it, and every night I would post, and um, it was getting read a lot by the people at my office, by people in Russia. Like, it was just weird. It, it, people forwarded it to other people. But there are moments, if you write for 365 days, like, how much can you really talk about yourself? You get bored with yourself. So I would, I would struggle with topics, and I would phone a friend, and I would say, give me one word. And don't tell me what the word means to you. Just give me a word. And somebody would say something stupid like clown. And I'm like, all right, tonight I'm going to write about clowns. And the only, the only thing I promise you is that I'm going to take your word, I'm going to write about it, and then I'm going to come back, and I want to understand what you were thinking about when you shared that word. And for me, it was about connection with others. I was going through a really difficult time. It was really hard, but I wanted to connect with other people. And by putting myself out, that was like, I've never been to a therapist, probably should at some point, <laughs> with listening to some stuff coming out of my mouth today. But I, like my therapy was writing and just getting stuff out there. And I learned, I learned why I am terrified of clowns, for example. Uh, that's overstatement. I, I just can't stand them. But it brought me closer to other people. And I think it brought other people closer to me because I let my guard down and I just shared. And like, if you, if you don't like it, then don't read it or don't, like, whatever. Um, but it was like, it was probably one of the most life-changing things I've ever done. It's 
but that was the connection to your one word. Give me a word, one word. You know, to all our listeners, we oftentimes give advice um, on strategies that you can use to reach out to people that you haven't talked to in a while. Uh, You know, reach out to someone from your past and give them authentic gratitude. It will rekindle the relationship. Um, This is fascinating. Texting someone that you haven't thought of in a while saying, what's one word that's on the top of your mind right now? It could be clown. It could be sad. It could be lamppost. What's one word? Yep. And then starting off a conversation with them, holy guacamole. Yeah, then it's not scripted, right? I yeah. mean, it's just like you have something to riff on. What's, one, can... what's one, one, one word right now? Um, besides gratitude? <laughs> yeah, besides the obvious. Um, <laughs> it's too easy. <laughs> pasta. 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 Well, isn't it awesome that uh, I love pasta? <laughs> I love, when I go to Italy, and to all you listeners, you might have remembered her name ends in, an, in a vowel, uh, ends in the letter I. So she is uh, fully Italian as well. Um, so you must love pasta as well. But when, when, I, when I go to Rome, I walk around the streets of Rome, and you listeners know that I have a great affinity to Rome. Rome is my whole soul and heart and everything, and curiosity and language and history. And um, I walk around and I say, sono studenti di carbonara. (laughs) I am a student of carbonara. And I walk around that damn place, going into every restaurant I can find, saying, sono studenti di cacio e pepe. Sono studenti di amatraciana. (laughs) Come, give me, give me, give me. And uh, yeah, it's like one of my favorite things to say is, sono studenti di carbonara. Cucina di Roma. Uh, I so that. I love pasta. What yeah, is, What me does too. pasta mean for you? Uh, love. Right? I mean, like, we're both Italian. Like, I think anyone who grew up in an Italian-American or Italian family, like, food's part of the thing, right? And I just, like, I feel very, very, very fortunate that I grew up with, like, a mom who could cook really well. Um, so there was a lot of pasta in my childhood, along with other stuff. But there was also emotion at the table, and mm. and you know, arguing is like a sport. And <laughs> I like, I, I love when you know people are afraid of conflict. I'm like, oh my god, we have more conflict, and it and it was still you're still loved, right? I mean, it wasn't, but a lot of this happens over the table, and um, it, there's also like ridiculous things where some people do, uh, if I do this, I can have a slice of cake or whatever. Mine's ravioli. You know, if I'm having a, like a really bad week or whatever, like that's what I would look forward to. I'll just, I'll just make stuffed, some ravioli. Stuffed with what? Just cheese. Like okay. Pretty basic. Like but, ricotta? Yeah. Or, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But, but that's like some people eat a burger for comfort food. Like mine would be ravioli with my mom's sauce. Like that's what I grew up with. That's, that's, Love. That's a show of love. So, yeah. Love a good bowl of pasta. I wish my uh, warehouse uh, didn't destroy 
1,800 jars of pasta sauce of mine, <laughs> I would uh, be giving you a jar right now. Um, Christina, Italian last name. I have three more things okay. um, as we start to um, wrap up. Um, the first thing that I'd like to say is that um, that person that was in that hospital room that was cheering you on, um, I imagine she found joy in seeing your success. I, I imagine she did. There is an ancient Indian language, Pali, P-A-L-I, and there's a word named mudita. Okay. And it means to delight in the good fortune of others. And you provided her through your strength right outside her hospital room. You provided her a tremendous amount of joy while she was celebrating your success, you provided her a tremendous amount of mudita. Mm. We all know that comparison is the thief of joy and envy is the ulcer of the soul. But in that moment, she was not comparing her situation in that bed at the end of her life with the success of you being able to walk down the hall with a broken pelvis and a cancer diagnosis. She was celebrating your successes and it was bringing her tremendous amounts of joy. That was number one. Number two is, I found it very interesting that you live in a world of dialectics. Uh, dialectic is the ability, it's the, it's the, 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 the Latin you know, study of being able to hold two opposing things uh, in, in, in your life at the same time. So the, the study of dialectics means that it's both black and white. It's not mm-hmm. black or white. Um, you can... I you, love gray. Yeah, I love gray. <laughs> I love gray. I love gray. Um, dialectics means um, you can both ask the question, why not me, but also why me? There's no judgment on either. You can hold both. At the same time, you can say to yourself, um, there were benefits of being unique in the boardroom, but at the same time, be in a hospital room and say, I'm not special. I got cancer. No. You know, this is- It happens. So so, um, you can both be a goal-oriented person while also seeking activities that don't have a goal-oriented specificity. Mm-hmm. You can resent certain things about your marriage while also being tremendously grateful for the marriage. So yeah. the study of dialectics means you can both want to practice radical acceptance while also wanting to practice change sure. or seeking change. All these kind of things. I can hate you yet still respect you. I can disagree with you yet still agree with you. So I think it's a beautiful thing that you're balancing that. Um, the final thing is that you said, I probably should go to therapy (laughs) and you giggle about it. My question is, is that the only probably should in your life? Well, I don't actually think I should. I mean, I, like I, I, why'd you say it? I'm, I'm open, I'm open-minded to it, but I haven't found the need. You know, I, I'm more mean at self-deprecating where I'm sure some 
therapist could like have a field day on me and ask me a bazillion questions. But like this for me is therapy. You're making me think about things that I like or ask me questions of things I never really thought about. So I hope I'm making sense in the way that I'm sharing them. But I'm pretty, I'm not afraid of looking in the mirror and figuring out what's going on. Um, I like confronting things that I might be doing that are like maybe not the best things or I should be more open-minded about or whatever. And from everybody that I know who's gone through therapy, like I, I know they find tremendous value in it. I just find that the way that I've approached my life has worked fairly well for me. So mm-hmm. if somebody provided me with a great therapist, I'd be certainly open to talk to them, but no, I'm not, I just, I just I, don't find the, the yeah, particular need. I just, then, yeah, I was just no. calling out that you did say probably yeah, should. Pre- yeah, I don't, I don't have don't, a lot of probably yeah. shoulds because if I want to do them, you I'll go do them. them. Yeah. One of the sentences we said earlier was break the glass, then find the opportunity, mm-hmm. not find the opportunity and then break the glass. Right. So you seem like a do and then ask for permission or no, do I and then ask for, for forgiveness. forgiveness. <laughs> Sorry, not ask, yeah, yeah. ask for, it's a, yeah, you do and then ask for forgiveness. Anyways, um, holy smokes, did we go places? Hopefully it made sense. It was, it was, it was a valuable conversation for me. I thought about things I haven't thought about. Which is uh, great. I learned something today. Grateful for that. <laughs> I am um, again. Uh, yeah, I could be slapped for saying this. I'm. I'm grateful for your cancer diagnosis. I'm grateful that I waited. However many months it took me to email you or to link in with you yeah. and ask you on this podcast. Um. I'm grateful that I waited. I'm grateful that I had imposter syndrome of reaching out to you and other, and, and, and other great people like you sure. to say, come on this podcast. Um, you know, I'll, I'll give a peek under the hood. Um, you know, one of the tools we, we, uh, we, we uh, Henry Schuck, uh, the founder and CEO of Zoom Info from Boston is a dear friend. And uh, a, a great, great supporter and cheerleader of my life, as I am of his, and a wonderful human being. And he gave me a, a we did a deal. I, I traded virtual gratitude experiences for a subscription to Zoom Info. So I made a list on Zoom Info months ago of the best chief people officers out there that I could invite onto my podcast. And I filtered through it months ago of who I did or did not want to invite. But then I waited months to invite them. And I am so, and so part of me is like, oh my God, what a waste of time of not having met these amazing people by not making the reach out to invite them on my podcast. And that's a negative mental attitude. It is. But I'm so grateful I waited. And I'm so grateful that you saw my email or LinkedIn request when you were in that hospital bed. Because it was the right moment for both of us to connect. Yeah, I agree. I right? agree. I think you live such a, an amazingly, of course, you probably would have said yes, uh, because that's just who you are. But at the same time, you, it probably would have just gotten ignored if you weren't 
I don't know. It's just well, it, the timing. Things happen. For, like sometimes yeah. things happen, right? And it just was. And it's perfect. All the best things in my life have happened when I've said yes yeah. versus no, right? And and it's when you feel uncomfortable or when you feel and you know I researched you and I'm like, why in the hell does this guy want to talk to me? Like, it, talk about. It, you know, the opposite of it, what you're saying, you know. I'm the, like, this guy's the, like pretty. It was, it was the pretty uh, hardcore. Like, I, you know, I can't imagine why he wants to talk to me. But it came at a really good time for me, right? Because I, yeah. I, I actually participated in a in a study at the hospital they were doing on positive mental attitude, going through diagnoses, et cetera. And Ooh. and it was like I heard from you the same day one of the doctors came in and asked me to participate in that. And I'm like, maybe there's something too. Like, I don't think of myself as anyone special. I just think I have a, I never sat and thought, oh, I have such a great positive attitude and other people don't. I just know that I do. I don't spend a lot of time worrying about if other people do or not. I just looked at it in my own world, but I never noticed that that was something unique or different about me. Well, uh, I mean, what is unique is that scientifically speaking, the brain takes in nine bits of negative information for every one bit of positive information, which means that most people wake up, focus on fixing or correcting the few things that are going wrong rather than appreciating the overwhelming amount of things going right and helping them go even more right. But like, why, who wants to live in the net? Like, I just don't get that. I understand like how we evolved. Yeah, it's it's not necessarily a human choice. It's just actually how we're wired. I know, I get get it. Because we had to fight off, you know, it's the amygdala filter. We had to fight off lions and bears and tigers and coal miners and blah, 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 back in the day. We had to remember the negative things that happened to others so that we didn't make those same mistakes like fall into the bear pit, get run over by a wagon, blah, 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 blah. Like that's what kept us alive. But we have a little bit less life or death situations now than we even did 140 years ago, which means we need to reshift the way our brain's wiring works and we need to shift to the positive. Gratitude is one of the scientifically proven micro-interventions according to the world of positive psychology that helps broaden and build your brain's thought-action repertoire needed for both positive thoughts and positive actions and positive blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, it was the right timing. Uh, oh, God. I, oh, by the way, the, the thing that made me... Uh, reach out in the first place was I was insanely curious about the definition of the word moose. Oh, it's that's singu- not where I thought you were going to go. Oh yeah, okay. no, that was the first thing that I found was your moose culture. Okay. And the fact that it's both a singular and, and a, a plural. plural word. So like so, that was the so, first massively fascinating thing. Okay, it's weird, right? I mean, what? I so, wouldn't it, expect it, anything other. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I did not create it. It existed before I joined the company. But two guys in sales were com- very competitive, and they realized we have to behave like moose. And you know, God knows what they were smoking or w- drinking or whatever <laughs> when they came up with this. Uh, the company was tiny at the time, but they thought so. It seemed like a ridiculous thing. But the, one of them was like, "If you think about it, the word moose is singular, but it's also plural. We have to behave like moose means we have to behave as a team." And they realized that if they brought their superpowers together, they could be infinitely more successful than competitors. And it worked. And the thing had legs. So it started off as, you know, sort of 
two guys joking around, but that is a core part of our culture. If, mm. if Corey, our CEO, is sending a note or addressing people, it's always high moose. We don't call our people employees. Um, we call them moose, which is, you know, sometimes maybe not the most flattering thing to be called. Hey, moose. But um, it's, it, that's, we have a 12-foot wooden moose standing in our headquarters lobby. <laughs> like, it's ridiculous. When people get awards, our, we have five core values, you get a moose award. So you get a stuffed moose wearing the, a T-shirt with the award you won along with some other stuff. But like the moose for us represents teamwork and collaboration. Those five values are bring you, challenge convention, <laughs> impact together, be an advocate, never done. Yep. <laughs> the moose, I just, well, I love that it, yeah, it, you have to be a strong individual while also be a, a strong player on the team. Yeah. Right. The, the greatest organizations understand that true economic potential of any successful team or community lies not in its individual prowess, but in their ability to connect, collaborate, and champion a shared vision. That's our sure. 3C model of collaborative leadership. Connect, yeah. collaborate, and champion. And, um, you know, it's funny, Moose, as just the final side story, um, one of our closest family friends is uh, a guy by the name of Mark. And Mark used to play hockey. Um, Mark Messier is his name. He used to be a hockey player, and he was called. He wasn't just a hockey player. <laughs> he's uh, yeah, one of the greatest uh, yeah, 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 yeah legends of all time. Yep. And um, and he's he's like an uncle to me, and he, he was called the Moose, Mark the Moose Messier, or Mark the Messiah Messier. Yep. Um, and so everybody in Madison Square Garden for all those years, or in Edmonton, would go Moose. You know, that was his thing. That's funny. But his book is called No One Wins Alone. It's all about collaborative leadership. It's all about bringing your best self to work so that you can best support your team. Um, and so I think that's actually, yeah, fascinating. Uh, that's uh, fascinating overlaps. But um, wow, did we go places? Mm. What are three to four sentences of what today's conversation meant to you? Um, oh, oh my gosh. Well, I, you know, I'm, I'm grateful. You know, when you meet somebody, like I felt connected when we talked. There was something about your email. And let's be honest, like I get a lot of emails, probably like you do, a day. And I delete most of them because they don't seem relevant and whatever. Um, and there was something about yours. And then I listened to some of your podcast. Like you sent me some links and I listened to your stuff. And like there's, there's something very special about you, right? And as I said to you, and I don't think we were on online when we were talking about this, but... Like, I have made my career betting on people. I, and, I, like, I mean, I suck at a lot of stuff. I'm really good at betting on people. That's where, like, if I see something special in someone, I will zone in on that, and then I will do whatever I can to, like, support that in someone. And uh, there was something special about you when we had that connection that I'm like, yeah, I'll drive three and a half hours from Boston <laughs> to come talk to you. Because even if you were recording, even if you throw this away, you're a really interesting person that's now a part of my life. And that for me, I'm like really grateful for that. Who doesn't want interesting, great people in their life? If you can't commit three and a half hours to driving for that, then you're, you know, you're shrinking your life. So that, that's what this means to me. And I get to see my daughter on the way home. She's, she's in school uh, a few minutes away. So I get to see her tonight too, which is nice. (laughs) 
Thank you. Thank you. If your parents were listening to this podcast right now, what would you say to them? I'm sorry for all the stuff that I did when I was 14 that got me grounded, that changed my (laughs) my whole outlook on life, Um, even though I'll never own up to exactly what it was that I was doing when I got in trouble. But uh, I hope they they realize how much I, I am grateful for the life they provided me, for the support they continue to give to me, even though I shun some of it because I'm pretty independent. And I think the downside of how they raised me was to be independent, but that bites you in the butt when your kid is now independent and you want to still be like actively involved in things. Um, but I just want them to know that uh, I, I'm deeply appreciative for everything that they instilled in me that uh, has made me who I am. And what's it? What's a message for your daughter? Daughters. I have two. Daughters. Um, I, I'm, if I'm grateful for anything in my life, if you ask me to like pick the top thing, it's them. Yeah. Right? I mean, just being a parent is such a fascinating challenge. Right? I mean, my two daughters are two years apart, and yet they are such different human beings. And I love that. If they were the same, it would be boring. I love the parenting challenge that comes with trying to figure out how to connect with both of them and what they need. Um, I love that they allow being a parent, like allows you to not be so selfish. It's, it's about them for the most part, not about you. At least when they were you know, younger, I get a little bit of myself back now. Um, and it's amazing to have like gone through all the hard stuff of like diapers and teenage years and all that stuff. And look at them now, and one of them is now launched out into the world. She's graduated from college in May and, um, and uh, is in her first job. Their co- her company went public yesterday. Like, awesome. And she's 22, and she doesn't even appreciate, like, how amazing, like, this rocket ship that she's just started uh, is. And my other one's a junior in college and is, is having a great experience. And it's just, it's like a privilege to watch them navigate life and to know that I played some small role in these amazing people that they're coming from. And I also want them to know, and I've told them this a hundred times already, but they both happened to be home this summer and we had just come home from Italy. My Rome is Florence. I, I absolutely love Florence. And we had just come home and four days later I was diagnosed and they were both there and they, I am so grateful that they were home and they, they, took care of the house, they took care of the dog, they took care of each other, they came to visit every day. And when we had a big debate because my pelvis was, or my pelvis was broken, that I wouldn't be able to walk up the stairs other than a, in an old brownstone and I wasn't gonna be able to get up the stairs. And they were like, we want you to come, come home. Don't go to a rehab center, we will help you. And um, I'm so grateful that I got to go home and be in my home recovering because they were willing to help. And that's, I mean, they grew up a lot this summer and I will be um, grateful to how they navigated this thing forever. They're just extraordinary people. What are their names? Kiara and Gianna. Kiara and Gianna. Well, Christina, thank you for coming on this podcast. I... um. I hope my questions and my curiosity uh, have 
uncovered or helped you uncover how much brilliance that you're sitting on that, uh, that can be used as a teaching tool to others. Because I wouldn't have wasted an hour and a half of my time recording this <laughs> if I didn't see the brilliance in everything that, yeah, is inside your head. It's incredible. Uh, there are many unique declarations and ideas that I think you owe the world for all the benefits you've received. You owe the world to start talking about them more. And um, I, to all our listeners, I mean, come on, if, if you've made it this far in the podcast, um, holy smokes. I mean, is this not uh, uh, one of the best podcast episodes we've ever recorded? I think so. I, um, I have so many, so many, so many quotable things uh, that, uh, that Leslie will have a great time uh, <laughs> summarizing, <laughs> right? Seek the stress, scale with soul, benefits of being unique. I appreciate you instead of thank you. Don't reinvent yourself. Just add a new chapter to yourself while not forgetting about the past. Avoid victim mindset. Hang with the hackers. <laughs> Connect with others. I'm not special, but there's benefits to being unique. Give me one word. Just one word. Mudita. There's a South African proverb that we often talk about that Desmond Tutu and Nelson Mandela used as a rallying cry to unite South Africa in a post-apartheid world. It's called Ubuntu. It loosely translates to I am because we are. Mm-hmm. Um, to Doc Rivers, the head coach of the NBA uh, team, the Boston Celtics, says that to him, the Ubuntu means I can't be all I can be unless you are all you can be. I can never be threatened because of how good you are because the better off you are, the better I will be. And he used that word, that philosophy, to unite the 2007 Boston Celtics, Ray Allen, Paul Pierce, Mm -hmm. Kevin Garnett, into the NBA champion, 2008 Boston Celtics. And you've summed up uh, the word Ubuntu here today through just how you live. Uh, You are uniquely you while also being empathetic, understanding, and of service to others. Um, it's not only in how you lead this amazing company, but it's how you live uh, in, in relation to others. And I think it's a, a, a beautiful, beautiful way of living. Um, I thank you for coming on this podcast. I, I honor everything that you've brought up here today. And, and I know that this is just the beginning of our journey. And I thank you so much for betting on me uh, with your time. And uh, I hope that the people listening to this podcast bet on others uh, in this grand of a way. And, you know, betting on others sometimes only means showing up with your full heart and soul and authenticity. And if the world could just do a little bit more of that, we'd be fucking grand. (laughs) So thanks for tuning in, folks, to all you listeners that keep on coming back. 
Um, I know why you do. Um, you get a little bit, you get to know yourselves a little bit more through each of these conversations because everything that Christine has just talked about here today is not novel or unique. She just has the courage to actually live the principles that we're all thinking. Be kind to others, lead with empathy, ask good questions, be endlessly curious. She just has the balls to do it every day of her life. So thanks for tuning in. Again, your questions, comments, thoughts, concerns are some of my favorite moments of the week. So keep them coming. I know you're going to have a lot from this episode. To all the new listeners, thank you. You've just gotten a peek into the hood of a fascinating individual. And I hope you support her in all her initiatives. Um, I hope you got a peek into the hood of me. Look, you don't know shit about me through this podcast. You don't know my stories. You don't know my life lessons. You don't know my learnings. But I hope you know that I genuinely care about others through my questions, through my presence, through my empathy, uh, through my ability to find unique insights and ideas. This is why I do this podcast, for the feeling that I feel right now. Great Maya Angelou once said, people won't remember what you did or what you said, but they'll always remember how you made them feel. Christina made me feel something today, and I'm grateful for that. So all you new listeners, I encourage you to subscribe to this shit. Keep coming back. It works if you work it. Click through the podcast episode archives and find meaningful conversations just like this. I hope y'all are having a phenomenal day on earth. Remember, folks, it's your world. Go explore. Check out the show notes below for some tangible things to do as a result of this amazing conversation. See you next episode.